Hi, this is Jackie Ma, head coach and CEO of Apex Training Gym. Thank you for joining us here on our podcast today as our main focus is on how we can increase your strength, hone your discipline, and improve your prowess on and off the weightlifting platform. It's not about being physically strong, but it's also about being mentally capable and emotionally responsible. As I tell my athletes, be the lion and not the hyena. You got to set chase and get after it before it gets away from you. So let's go. All right, so this is Jackie Ma Apex Training Podcast. Thank you for joining us here on our sixth podcast. We have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Hazen. She is just a remarkable gastroenterologist. She's a scientific researcher. She's written books. She is the pioneer. She is like, she's a CEO of Pagena Biome, right? And she also has a sense of humor, which I love. I read her book and you got, but enough about me talking. So her time is very confined, and she is just amazing, really. She's a mother of two. Uh, she's been a fellow for the University of Miami in Florida back in the day when there wasn't any, like, females in that head of the field, and she broke that barrier, you know. And so I am just so ecstatic that we have this opportunity with Dr. Hazen. So please, without further ado, today's podcast, we are going to discuss you are what you eat. You got to trust your gut instinct. And we are going to talk about the microbiome. Dr. Hazen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie, for having me. I'm always up for talking shit. Yeah, this is it. that's what it is, right? The shit, these crap, you know? That's it. You know, no I'm not sugarcoating it. I'm not calling it the microbiome. I'm calling it the way it is. Yeah, because it's, it's like the blueprint of how your body's operating, you know? Let's you know. Shit doesn't lie. And it's basically, you know, everybody, when I wrote the book and I named it that, my sister said, are you sure people are going to want to read this? I go, I've been in GI for 25 years. Everybody talks to me about their poop, their shape, the color, the size. Everybody's obsessed about their poop. So so true. And they're not going to admit it. Nobody's going to admit. But then that's the most you know, that's the discussion around nursing homes. You hear people, oh my God, this didn't agree with me. It's all about the gut. You're in a restaurant. Yeah, I went to see my GI doctor. GI is is it. I mean, people, when they, you know, my husband's a cardiologist and I'm GI and I always tell him the gut is where it's at. If you don't have a happy gut, you don't have a happy life. That's it. Right? You right. You're constipated, you're miserable, Right. That's so true. Believe me, I I know when after I had my shoulder rotator cuff, that was that bothered me more than the the, the pain in my shoulder. A hundred percent from like the narcotics. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I it was not a and you don't want to talk about it with your friends. Hey, how's your day? How's your shoulder recovery? Well, that's okay, but you know, I'm I, I feel like I need to kind of like be a little bit lighter in body weight. I mean, you know, right. but that's, that's a topic that's like very sensitive. Yeah. It is very taboo, right? Very much so. But when you're better and you're, and I remember it's funny because Dr. Oz gave one of his podcasts early on and he said, if you don't have a bowel movement the size of your forearm, you are not healthy. 
And I used oh. to I used to joke about that, and I would say, "Why is a cardiothoracic surgeon talking about the gut? That's my field. Why is he stepping into the gut, right?" But in fact, he was right. If you do not have a healthy, now it doesn't have to be the size of a forearm. Most women, you know, will beg to have the size of a forearm, and most women will not have a forearm because our insides are different. You know, we have a uterus that's, you know, in between our bowels that are supposed to stick. I always say being a woman gastroenterologist is a lot more challenging than being a man because you have. Uh, you attract a lot of women that come for colonoscopy and they have tortuous bowels because they've had pregnancy, they've had scar tissue, they have endometriosis. So it's a roller coaster. Very complex. And men, it's just a straight shot. Five minutes into the cecum, you're done. Women, it's in and out. We have more organs, we're more complex. So because of that, our bowel movements are not as good, you know, as a guy for the most part. That's kind of amazing stuff. Some people can have two a day and other people, it takes them 72 hours to bake one. You know, it's just kind of crazy, but it is a driving force. I mean, me being a bedside physical therapist, you know, that's really literally the driving force. It sounds like when they're so constipated, they don't want to get out of bed. They right. really don't. And they know they have to walk. And even then when they got to go, I mean, forget about the bed alarms and the tab alarms and calling. They make a beeline. Right. It's like in hard drive. Mammals, you don't poop or you sleep. You just don't. Right. All right. Even though we tell them, oh, it's okay. We'll clean you. We'd rather clean you up in the bed than we have to have you like fall on the floor. Right. But right. It's in a hard drive, any animal, you don't defecate where you rest. And so when we have people, I mean, that's how, like we say it is. It's the shit that drives you. The shit that drives you. 100%. I mean, speaking of, it's not about me. I'm not extremely uncomfortable, right? I mean, when you're gassy, that cramp and everything, everything stops. You could be a ballerina about to do a show and you're all these months of Truth. practicing stopped because you had that salad that just made you uncomfortable or that bowl of lentil that you didn't agree with. So everything is what we eat. And, you know, what's amazing for me is over the years, you know, 25 years of hearing people complain of gas and bloating and all this. I have it down to a science now because I kind of see, okay, well, let's talk about what you're eating. And inevitably, it's always what they're eating. It's also what's interesting for me is it's the person that was healthy. And then all of a sudden, somebody told him, oh, dude, you need to stop gluten because that's bad for you. And then he stops gluten and starts eating all these gluten-free bread. And now he's starting to have a problem or vice versa. The person who wasn't really eating whole wheat and was told by someone, oh, you need to eat whole wheat, and then comes to see me, and then he has celiac fruit. And then he goes, well, what happened? I'm like, well, you started eating wheat. It's not part of you. It's not part of your digestive, your fingerprint of your gut. So you right. About fingerprint. We all have, you know, I stepped into the microbiome to understand, really. I mean, I stepped into medicine to understand life. Where do we go after we die? Little did I know I was brought into this path of understanding the microbes because the microbes is what stays in your colon and basically is what takes over the body and decomposes the body. So essentially, the microbes in your colon is what decomposes you and puts you back into the earth. 
So the bacteria that we come from to the bacteria that kills us is still in us. It's still part of this whole ecosystem. When you kind of think about it, it's kind of like the, I mean, the microbes are so, like, I mean, you see with a microscope, I mean, and yet they're driving us, our food choices, they're driving us, like, that can actually stop wetting, you know? I mean, it's fascinating that it's the the microbes. Yeah, we are a reservoir for trillions of bugs that are basically guiding us, right? So, you know, the gut is the motherboard, essentially. That's how we have to start thinking of it, right? Because we're being driven by these bugs. Right now, society, the world is stopped because of COVID-19, right? Right. Tell me the power of an invisible little, you know, tiny, tiny virus that you cannot see unless you're, you know, doing genetic sequencing, you know? It's impressive. And so when you start looking into the invisible world and you start looking, so my path was, you know, trying to understand. So I've been playing kind of detective work, right? Because I'm always fascinated by the new technology, the new medications, the new, you know, that's why I've been in clinical trials for for so many years is because I want to see what's the new drug. Like if I develop Parkinson's tomorrow, I want to be you know, in contact with the pharmaceutical company that has the newest drug with Parkinson's because I know it's going to take about 10 years to 20 years till it makes the market, right? So I'm always ahead of the technology. I always want to know what's coming and I want right? I'm kind of a techie that way. So when the genetic sequencing came on and I was doing fecal transplant and I was seeing, you know, here I am taking stools from a healthy donor and putting it into an unhealthy person with C. diff, just right. back is Clostridium difficile is a bacteria you catch from antibiotics, taking antibiotics. And so what happened is when I was seeing, I was trying to kill this bacteria with clinical trials. And when clinical trials didn't work, I would do fecal transplant. And my first patient that I, that it, that fecal transplant worked, I was blown away because I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? All I did was like take some stools from a healthy person and put it in into an unhealthy, right? It was almost like magical or something. It was kind of crazy. The diarrhea got away. The patient was healed. And some of these patients have followed for like 16 years. They have yet to come back with C. diff. So something happened, but it was more of a miracle that kind of like for me, not a miracle, but it was like kind of an enlightening, right? That, you know, when you see, something that changed or something you did to a patient and it improved them and you go, well, what did I do? You want to understand, right? And uh, to me, it wasn't about, I need to start doing fecal transplant on everyone or I need to sell a pill with poop. I needed to understand because, you know, in my own family, I have people that have taken antibiotics and have gotten diseases. And so, do I want to transplant my family members with another family member's poop? I don't know enough. What am I transplanting? What if I swap rheumatoid arthritis for lymphoma? What if I swap celiac poop for lymphoma? I took it upon myself to investigate. So I started sending stools to different labs and I got different results. So I said, well, this field is complete crap, pardon my language. Hey, no pun intended, right? <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. And then I started opening my genetic lab. I went, I called Dr. Sidney Feingold, who wrote the book on anaerobic bacteria. 
And I said, what am I seeing when I transplant stools of a patient? And by the way, this happened with Alzheimer's. I had one case of Alzheimer's where I was trying to put the patient into a clinical trial for Alzheimer's. So I had his mini mental status and I knew that he was, you know, mini mental status of 20. He didn't qualify for the trial, but he ended up developing C. diff. When he developed C. diff, I had to, I tried medications over the counter because that's the standard of care. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to give fecal transplant because I don't have any options now. This guy's not improving. Anyways, after a month, he comes back, his C. diff is gone. And he starts remembering things and he's laughing. And by the way, I used his wife as the donor. So I joked with him. I go, now you're really hilarious. I said, now you're going to eat your wife's shit. So anyway, so basically he, um, he improved, right? So when he started improving and his memory started coming and then six, I, we did, he questioned me and he asked a question. And then what happened is I started saying, wait a minute, let me redo the mini mental status. And in fact, it was redone by me and another neurologist and it improved. And then six months into that, we repeat it. And you know, in the mini mental status, there's like a square and a triangle. Yes. But it's basically like two squares and two triangles on the top and you're supposed to just, you know, put them one on top of the other. Right. So the time he drew it, it was all like messed up. You couldn't even see a square or triangle. The second time he drew it, it was almost perfect. So I was blown away. So I went to see Sidney Feingold, who was, you know, the doctor who wrote the book on anaerobic bacteria. And I said, Sidney, what am I seeing when I'm transplanting a patient and he's remembering his memory? He gave me his protocol and he said, put this in a safe. And when you buy the machine to analyze the stools and do genetic sequencing, you're going to find this bacteria that are cultured for 40 years. So I was excited, but I was like, I'm never going to open a lab, et cetera. And then next thing you know, Woolsey fire hits and I'm busy with my house, you know, the whole backyard burning and everything and bringing supplies to Malibu, et cetera. And I get a phone call from the family that I get all his books, his patents, everything. His, uh, his paperwork, basically not patents, but paperwork. In the paperwork, there was some patent stuff in there that had expired. And I saw in there Dr. Barodi's name. And Dr. Barodi was the, the fa- is to me the father of fecal transplant. He's like a genius. Right. Right? He's one of those people you look up to and you go, wow, this guy's such a cowboy, right? And so I met him at a meeting. I had never met him before, but I, I had done work in clinical trials where he was the medical director for Crohn's disease and H. pylori. He was the, you know, he's the one that started triple therapy for H. pylori. So I knew of him because he was always in these clinical trials that I was involved as a principal investigator. So my friend Neil at a meeting introduces us and says, oh, by the way, and uh, Sabine, you know, also has good results with Crohn's disease where she improved Crohn's with fecal transplant. So he was so excited because nobody was able to reproduce his data. That supports the strength of the, the of, you know, of your protocol is to be able to make reproduce to reproduce it. It's all about reproducibility. Yes. Reproduce it. It's very tough. So him and I started communicating like December 2018 after I had gotten all the books from Dr. Feingold. And I go, by the way, you know, I saw some papers with your name. So it was like almost divine intervention. Yes, absolutely. 
And we talked and we've been talking for like two years straight, every night practically. I'm sure his wife is so tired of me, partner. And so we came up with, you know, let's look into the microbiome. Let's look at before and after transplantation. Because if we transplant something and something changes, the answer is in the microbiome. And I wasn't going to, I sent them to different labs and I got different results from different labs. So that's when I realized I needed to do it in-house. And so, you know, midlife crisis, I bought a, I set up a genetic sequencing lab and I basically bought a machine to analyze poop. And then little by little, I started understanding the field a little bit better. I was understanding why fecal transplant worked in some people and why it didn't work in others. Like I started matching almost or understanding what we were doing. And then, I, you know, I'm a huge gardener, so I put everything with gardening. So I kind of, you know, real, you know, put it like it was gardening. You know, you remove some roses, blueberries, a beautiful garden, and then you're left with a bunch of weeds, much like with C. diff, right? Oh, that's a great analogy. Yeah, you kill off all the bacteria. That's a great one. By one. So we have in our guts multiple trillion bugs, right? But out of the trillion, we only know about 15,000 bugs, what they do, what they're not supposed to do. So when people say, well, you know, I have a lot of E. coli in my gut. Well, does that mean E. coli is a good bug or a bad bug for you? If you're healthy and you have a lot of E. coli, maybe you need a lot of E. coli, right? A lot of people have reactor, but they're healthy, right? So what happened is we as GI doctors always get patients that go to these labs and get tested for their stools, right? And over the years, we couldn't really make it. And I would call my friend Neil in San Francisco and I would say, Dr. Stolman, who, by the way, got me into this field of playing with poop. So it's all his fault completely because I was a clean GI. If there was poop, I was getting out of there. So instead, he said, that's the future. So I followed him. So I called Neil and I said, Neil, what do I make about all these lab tests? You know, I'm seeing all these tests from, you know, all these labs. And he said, I have no idea. And I said, well, if you have no idea and I have no idea, and people are coming to us and all my colleagues, you know, like GI from Brown University, Dr. Kelly, she has no idea. You know, so many doctors, Feynman Zhang in, in China, he has no idea about these labs and what is oh that? Oh my gosh. So I realized, well, that's, Here's a great tool, right? An ability to see your microbes, but we have no idea what it means. So I decided to open my lab and I decided to do what I do best, which is hurricane fashion. I created 42 clinical trials and I hired a regulatory board and I decided to look at the microbiome with every diseases because I figured every disease has something. Let's see the similarities. What did I first is that we're all different. Well, we know that, you know that, I know that. In other words, our gut microbes are all different. You ate in a Chinese restaurant yesterday. I ate in a Japanese. Of course, we're going to have different bacteria roaming around in our guts, right? Right. So that was one thing. So if a lab is telling you that you have X amount of bacteria, and the reference is 100 to 1,000, well, what does that mean? If the 100, how can you be compared to someone else? So that was the first thing that kind of bothered me. And that I noticed is that we're all different. 
So if we're all different, how can we compare people within a disease, right? So then I started looking into my own family. That was the second thing that was kind of light flashing. And the first thing that I noticed within my family, we have similarities. Our microbiomes, my daughter and I that are similar, are very similar. We're like the colors are matching almost, except for obviously that she ate or whatever. But, you know, for the most part, the relative abundance, that's how when we talk about bacteria in our gut, it's all about relative abundance. Like what percentage of your gut microbe is E. coli? What percentage is bifidobacter? What percentage is listeria? You know what I mean? It's all these groups of Prevotella, for example, right? Right. So compare me and my daughter that are very similar, and we butt head a lot because we're so similar. She's like me. She's a mini hurricane. Could you imagine? It's like cloning yourself. So you're like talking to your no, world. No, I hear what you, I know what you mean. It's kind of like, you know, it's the opposites attract and like kind of repels a little bit because exactly. you, already, you already kind of already have that. Yeah. So, and then my other younger daughter is very similar to my husband. So that was the thing that I started noticing. So we created a formula to basically look at the microbiome with families, a pipeline, a bioinformatics pipeline that, you know, was created to understand the microbiome within families. And then from there, we look at the microbiome in the population of autistic children, for example. Okay. So that was the beginning. The beginning was, okay, well, let's look at this. But of course, this is the reagents are super expensive. So we've been very lucky to have families that have been wanting to participate in this research and following my, you know, my lead in a way, because they didn't, I told her, I said, I don't know what I'm going to be seeing. I don't know what I'm going to be, but I'm willing to look into autism, especially because after Dr. Adam's study on fecal transplant, improving autism, you know, I wanted to see, I got, you know, a lot of patients came to me because I do fecal transplant and came to me for autism. And I said, you know, everything is guided by the FDA. So everything, if you want to do fecal transplant on a patient with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, anything, you have to go through the FDA and you have to submit a a bunch of paperwork. The paperwork is about 22 pounds when you're done with it. So it's tremendously expensive. It's tremendously, you know, again, don't know whether you're going to find success or not, but this is basically the path. So I started looking at autistic children. And I started looking at Crohn's disease and I started looking at C. diff. The one thing I noticed that was interesting was that we have an imprint of C. diff in our gut. And we found it. So I analyzed about the first 19 patients. I just started looking at my stools and my husband's and my family. And I, and I looked at my stools and I'm like, wait a minute, I have C. diff, but I don't have bacteria. I didn't take antibiotics. Right. I said, well, I'm a GI doctor. Probably I exposed myself and therefore colonized myself with C. diff. But then, hey, if I have C. diff in my gut and I don't have symptoms and it's in check and I don't have the toxin, then you know what? It's not such a big deal to have C. diff in your gut, right? Right. So then I started looking at my husband. I'm like, well, he's also a doctor. Probably he got colonized. Maybe I gave it to my kids, right? That's why they have it. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not C. diff, the toxigenic C. diff. This is the C. diff that's a non-toxigenic. In other words, non-causing problems, right? It's just a fingerprint. When we do genetic sequencing, we look at the fingerprint of 
the microbe. We basically take a tiny little piece of, of stool that's the size of a nail, and then we break it down, and then we essentially do a prep, library prep, to make sure we don't mix the samples and everything. And then we send it to this pipeline that rematches the stool with the gene of the of the bacteria, the virus, the fungi. Fascinating. It's really fascinating. Amazing. So when you look at this vast array of bugs and you see Prevotella, Clostridium difficile, Clostridium perfringens, all these bugs living, you know, in that person, basically, you start to kind of make sense of it. You start seeing, okay, well, you know what? People with anxiety, for example, have a certain amount of relative abundance, meaning like an overgrowth, right? That other groups don't have. So this is why we need a lot. Of course, before I come out and say, oh, by the way, the, the bug for anxiety is X, Y, Z, or the formula, because it's never, see, people think that it's always one bug causes the problem. But really, it's not. It's a formula. It's one bug is increased, but then another one's decreased. And another group is up and another one is decreased. So it's not only, so the old ways that we learned medicine is, okay, well, you have a bacteria, you give an antibiotic, kill the bacteria, you're fine. But then what we didn't realize is that when you're killing that bacteria, you're also killing a whole group of other bacteria, which then causes another problem, right? And another problem until you get C. diff. C. diff is the model that kind of tells us that there's a dysbiosis, that there's something offset in the person, right? But it's not right. only diff, it's other bacteria that we don't even know what they're secreting of toxins, right? Because it's, it's a effect. It's you kill one, it kills another. I like to give it an example of a transmission of a car, right? When you have a transmission of a car and you break it down, it's 880 pieces when you break down the transmission, right? Yes, right. If at any point one piece of the transmission is broken, your whole transmission is broken. So imagine that log that you see in the toilet is a transmission. And now it, there's a group of bacteria that have been messed up. Pretty soon your log is decomposing and breaking down. Oh, okay. And the disease starts occurring because you started off with one thing that broke, much like that transmission. Now, the same example with the transmission, if I take that transmission and I basically want to fix it, then I'm going to break the other piece of the transmission by replacing that one piece. So any mechanic will tell you that if you want to fix a transmission car, you got to change the whole transmission. You got to look at all the diagnostics and it's like, well, this is, you need a new line or something. Exactly. So that's what fecal transplant is, right? It's a new transmission. But are you going to put a transmission of a Honda in a Mercedes? It's not going to match, right? So that's why it's important when we do fecal transplant, when we look at what are we putting in that it needs to match. Because otherwise... Right. So a, lot, a big reason why reproducibility is so hard with fecal transplant is, one, we need to fine-tune the method. Two, we need to fine-tune the donor. We need to understand the donor. We can't just give, you know, a person that's from Mexico their stools to a person from Japan. It's not going to be the same microbiome. Different. 
They crave different food. That was my mission. That was my interest in understanding. I'm essentially doing 23 and me of the gut. So eventually. Oh, so you well, said that uh, you're talking about the breakdown of the stool size. And I'm like, what is this? Like, it's like a chromosome. It's like it's a chromosome. Yes. It's like it's a poop chromosome. What's fascinating to me is that we are seeing from family members, you know, I get excited about my work. So, you know, I'm like, amazing. I love it. It's very exciting because to me, it's like, this is the abyss of understanding the microbiome. It's understanding life. It's understanding that, listen, when I was pregnant with my daughters, I, one child, the one that's not similar to me, one child, I was craving French fries, chicken nuggets, garbage food, nachos. That's crazy. That's all she eats. Okay. So I'm giving her, you know, or she was feeding all the stuff that was, she was craving in a way. Right. I've heard that with many of my female friends are like, I don't know why I'm craving this. I don't even like it, but this is what the baby wants. This is so it taught me something. So same thing with like my oldest child, I was craving vegetables and healthy food. And that's all she eats. Like the kid is vegetables, fruits, you know, so I have one kid that's garbage food and the other one is like healthy food. So go figure. But both of them are stable, healthy, you know, this is what their gut requires, wants, right? Of course, you know, I try to keep my, both of them on a balance so that they have equal amount of junk food. So I'm just kidding. No, I think it's important to understand the microbiome essentially. I agree. No, totally. It just really against, I'm just so fascinated. I remember like the first time when I looked at a microscope slide with a drop of pond water, I see all like, the, it was like a carnival going on in there. And I was kind of like doing this, like, you know, and I can only imagine, like, I mean, it's a lot more complex with uh, the microbiome. And just to be able to look at that and discover how you can treat like things as such, you know, been treating like C. diff and autism and and Alzheimer's and how it's already like really natural occurring. And like you said, it's, it's only hitting the abyss and we just touched upon it. It's cutting edge. It's, it's cutting edge. at the same time, you don't want to start selling poop with, with capsules until you understand and you do do diligence. And that's why the FDA is important, right? That's why the FDA, you know, overanalyzes everything and looks at everything carefully because unfortunately when there is a problem, you know, we did have some deaths from fecal transplant and that needed to be looked at too, because we learn from, you know, the mistakes more than we learn from the successes, right? I mean, all is research. We don't know. This is a brand new field. So, you know, I just thought to me, it's whenever people sell something and tell me, well, this is good for you. I worry about that because, you know, where's the data? I always say, show me the data. Show me the data. That it's good for me. Now that we have like analysis of the microbiome, we should absolutely look at the microbiome before and after testing. We should see what changes. Even before putting a medication into market, we should look, or food, we should look at what it's doing to the microbiome. Probiotics, for example, right? Right. So many probiotics out there. What are they? They're basically bugs, microbes in a pill. Right? Multi-billion dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar industry. It's crazy. That's good for you. or for And for you specifically. How do you know that bug is what your body needs? How do I you know? I don't really know. So someone looks at, take a look at your. Microbiome. 
Yeah, your microbiome. Yeah, your post product. You know, I just hope that you know, with there's greater research. I mean, that I would think that there should be like should and what really happens in reality. When we talked about before we started the podcast and how two billion dollars were invested in the biome, and then the conclusion was that they didn't really find anything like outstanding. And I was thinking to myself, how can you say two years is even enough? I mean, some research take 10, 20, 30 years, if not longer. Well, I think also, you know, it's so there's a problem in the field in that the scientists work on one end, right? The, all the PhDs that work with biotech companies work on one end and the doctors work on the other end, right? So this is actually the first time. Well, probably not the first time. I'm sure there's been a lot of other times where doctors have joined up with scientists. But, you know, I joined up with scientists that are genomic scientists, Dr. Papuzzi, and I basically went into this path of trying to understand it. So he taught me so much, and he learned from me as well, being on the medical side. So really that collaboration is what's needed. And too often what happens is we put these products onto market and we leave the doctors behind. But the doctors are the ones seeing the patients on the front line. The doctors are the ones seeing what's working. The doctors understand these bugs, you know, like from mycoplasma to tuberculosis to listeria. I mean, we know as much. Obviously, we don't know enough because we're just learning all this. But if we are kept in the dark and the technology is advancing faster, then we end up, you know, taking care of the patients and the sequela. And that's a problem. It is. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Look at autism. Perfect example. 1980, the rate of autism was 1 in 2000. Now it's close to 1 in 40. What happened? What is happening to the microbiome in children with autism? What happened? Maybe the because the microbiome is obviously passed on from mother to grandmother. Right. Seeing you know, stools of grandmothers and mothers and children. And there's a similarity, right? Even though you see, you almost see like the aging process of the microbiome, right? So the thing is, what happened from one family member that was a grandma that never had colon cancer, for example, lived to 100 years old, mother is 60 years old, and son develops colon cancer at 29. What happened there? You know, no genetics longevity in the family, and all of a sudden the 29-year-old dies of colon cancer. Those are the things that bother me as a physician because I say, well, if you look at the history of disease and if you look at the pattern, you know, Alzheimer's in America is increasing. Parkinson's is increasing. Autism is increasing. What are we doing? What are we doing to our microbiome? And so is it maybe there's too many medications out there? Too many foods with medications. Yeah, food sourcing, all the GMO stuff. I don't even like, I mean. Who knows, right? But the fact is, if we don't stop and go back and calm down the system a little bit, calm down the production, the over, you know, producing of probiotics, for example, that is potentially could create an imbalance in the whole system. How do we know that the mother that took probiotics while she was pregnant then transferred those microbes to the baby and therefore created an imbalance which caused, you know, a child to have a problem. We don't, right? So right. Say the foods, how do we know that in the foods, 
the fact that, you know, it wasn't up until a couple of years ago that the FDA stopped farmers from giving antibiotics to the cows, to the beef. Yeah, I've heard that, that they started putting all like these types of chemicals and even artificial nitrogen in the soil since like this stemmed all the way back from like World War II when they were like, you know, using chemicals during warfare and all of a sudden it transferred into things like Roundup through like Monsanto. I'm not sure I'm not the only ones. Yeah, we're seeing the problems from Roundup, right? We're seeing the problems of all these marketing foods and, and products and everything. So we need to kind of slow down and say we need to understand it because guess what? We're all going to be patients. You're going to be a patient. I'm going to be a patient. The CEO of Amazon is going to be a patient. The CEO of the food company, the probiotic is going to be a patient. And he's going to wake up one morning and with whatever, Alzheimer's, cancer, Parkinson's, and he's going to say, what the hell happened? No one has it in my family. How did I get it? We have to pay attention. We do. We have to pay attention to the microbiome, and we have to pay attention to what have we changed that has gotten us to this level? What have we changed? I mean, here we are. You know, one thing we've changed is we're talking a lot more about products on television, you know? We have are advertising left and right on all these products, right? We're doing too much. We need to Mm. slow down, and we need to kind of assess what have we done and go back a little bit because at this rate, you know, if one in 40 is autistic today, what is it going to be in 20 years? One in one? Yeah, well, you're right. We, we need to slow down and kind of step back and look at the data. More than look at the data, it's just kind of at what point, like you said, did it shift? Yes, yes. And what can we do to bring back homeostasis? What can we bring some normality back so we can actually, you know, for scientists to keep on being able to do what they do and the doctors and get the funding and the support? That, I mean, it's, you know, people, doctors, the science should be able to drive this and not like government entities or people that were at the receiving end of the suffering and having to pay for it. And I think it's a mistake to talk about. I mean, I'm going into the limelight now to discuss it because I want to awaken the minds, right? Because I think it's important for people to understand, right, what they're doing and for people to understand what they're putting into their mouths and to have the freedom of choice to say, Yes or no. And to also say, well, what are my risks? So in other words, if I take this pill, am I going to risk having this disease versus, you know, risk versus benefits? Because at the end of the day, it's a consent between the patient and the doctor. And last I checked, you know, the politicians are not the ones taking care of a kid that's banging his head from autism. You know, the doctors are. So we need to give support to the doctors. We need to have doctors working together. We need to have an organization of scientists and doctors working together to look at this. It's no longer COVID has hit to awaken us to look beyond, to see what we are not seeing, to see the invisible microbe in killing people. And why is it killing people? Why is it entering our bodies and allowing uh, some people to survive and some people to, to die, right? The microbiome tells us it's going to tell the story. Yeah, it has a profound effect on the entire family unit. Now you go from like 1 to 2,000, like you said, to like 140. You know, that means we have to be proactive and we need to support. We have to need to support our scientists and research. That's where it's at because if we don't 
improve and, and learn and advance, you see the same and it becomes obsolete. And the other thing that I think is important is not only let the scientists and the doctors do their thing, but also remove the bias. Anytime you say to a doctor, you promote something, right? And you discuss a trial before it even becomes a trial, you're biasing healthcare. You're biasing the scientist because now the scientist that was unbiased and totally free thinking, an artist, really, I mean, scientist, yeah. artist, you're now telling them how to draw the tree. You shouldn't be telling them how to draw the tree. You should let them draw the tree. You shouldn't be telling doctors how to practice medicine or healers or, or naturopaths how to practice healing because it is a patient-doctor relationship, and that's very important. If you don't have that patient, listen, at the end of the day, who do I trust with my life? You know, I trusted Dr. Barodi with my life. That's why I stepped in with him to help with this whole COVID and creating clinical trials and everything. Because if you have to have a trust in someone that's going to have your back and that wants you to stay alive, right? Yes, they're so better you than you. That relationship with your physician. Nobody's doing this. You know, physicians don't go into medicine because they need to make, you know, money, etc. They go in because they really want to help. If they wanted to make money, listen, I would have sold shampoos for a living and I would have made tons of money selling shampoos. I mean, yeah, you my- hair. I mean, I was looking at things like I would have sold shampoos left and right. But you know, this is not my job. This is not my life. My life is to change disease, to understand disease, to understand life. That's what's my obsession, my passion, because I feel like all of it is distraction for what are we here for? We are here for a mission. We all have a job, you know? You have your job, you know, physical therapy. I do, yeah. You know, mine is shitty, yours is not. Well, I clean it on occasion. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. So anyways, I think it's important to have doctors be non-biased, to be artists, to let them practice the way they want to practice it. That really, they shouldn't be a blockage between the patient and the doctor because, and we're not all robots. Everybody is different. We're not, you know, a one pill solution never works. We're all different. That's why some people respond to some pills and some people don't. So it's important to, you know, that's it. I have a huge respect for patients. Because I feel like they work super hard. They're there at two o'clock in the morning when you can't swallow or you're vomiting blood or you're having a heart attack. You know, I see my husband working these long hours with heart attack patients and, you know, myself, et cetera. And, and my colleagues that deal with GI bleeds at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock. You know, this is not an easy job. It is. So if I'm part of that, you know, we make it much harder by you know, putting blockage and stopping us from giving what we want to feel that should be the right drug, you know, it's a problem. It is a problem. I agree that doctors and researchers and scientific research, you know, people, I mean, this is helping our people, helping their family. And I I agree that, you know, this politics should be removed. Yeah, if you want to do politics, then do your politics and do your bills and do whatever, your filibustering stuff and let the doctors do their job. So that they yeah. can save lives, so they can advance research, advance protocols, so we can figure out how it is that my, you know, my grandson or my future granddaughter doesn't end up with autism. That's what I want. That's where I want my money to go. That's exactly. Right? 
And that's what yeah. I want. You know, yeah. I stepped into this because, you know, I got to protect the future after I'm dead. I mean, I got to protect the future. My microbiome needs to be well, you just look at 50, 60 years in you, you know, for sure. At least. And, yeah, I know. I, but know. I, think to, I think we need to protect the microbiome, you know, as much as we're protecting the planet, the planet and humans are all together. You know, it's flora. So I recoined the term fecal transplant to refloralization because to me, it's from flora to flora. You know, you come from the earth. harmonious. That's so cool. So it's like we came from dust and to dust we return. Dust to dust. So we have to use our time on the planet to understand, to break through the barriers, to unite, right? This virus, if anything, should unite humanity. It should unite everyone to say, let's work together to find a solution. Let's be at peace with each other. Stop the hate, bring on the love. Stop the destruction, bring on the construction, you know, because that's what fecal transplant, what we did, we learned from refluorization or fecal transplant is you bring it, you kill off a bunch of bacteria. Those bacteria come to kill you. They secrete their toxins to kill you. But if you give a whole lot of bacteria, you replenish the balance and therefore you have health. So you need more love more happiness, more calms down the system. The microbiome tells it. It's, yeah, we're, we're too inflamed right now. We need to just kind of bring down the heat. Bring down the heat. You know, by meditation, gardening, painting. You know, half the hard time, my hardest job taking care of COVID is the anxiety people are getting from the news and the media and the, just today, my daughter, my little one, who's been quarantined, poor thing, you know, she got together with her friend once in like forever. And she's freaking out because her other friend and another friend was positive. And she's like, Mom, I'm like, Scarlett, calm down. The likelihood is so minimal that you're going to have it. So just calm down the system. No, it's all. Yeah, it killed your gut. Think about it. When you're stressed, your first thing is your gut, right? Yes, it is. Constriction. Yes. When you're panicking for an exam or you're panicking for something, you're getting anxious in your gut, right? Yes. You start, the first thing you do, you go to the bathroom and bang, there you go. Fight or flight or poop. One of those. There you go. It's exactly that. So we have to calm down the system. Let our gut be our garden and grow the good bacteria to fight off the virus. Yes. And bring in the sun and go outside and breathe the fresh air, you know, bring in, because if you're cooped up in a house, you're in a sterile environment, you're not with nature, you know, the, the planet gives us what we need, you know, from vitamin C to vitamin D. So oranges in the trees, you know, all that is needed so yes it's important and the microbes of gardening you know they did studies where they took kids that were in a kindergarten and they put them playing in the garden and playing with soil and they noticed actually there was decreased infections in those kids from gardening so Jackie thank you so much for having me and I hope this episode of let's talk shit was 
awesome for you. And people got to learn a lot of stuff. And they can get the book, letstalkshit.org. So they can order it. They can learn about digestion, what's causing them some gas, what certain foods to take, and all keeping it natural. Thank you again, Dr. Hazen, for allowing us to have you on our podcast. And it's just incredible. You're a dynamic gastroenterologist, a mother of two. And there was so much detail covered in the microbiome of our bodies in general, how it's creating this shift in general with our global awareness of it really matters what we put in our body and we do become what we eat. It helps to generate energy, but it also can be the beginning of the demise of certain diseases and such. So again, thank you so much for being here on our podcast and we will be sure to let people know that they can go on the contents page to purchase your book and to get in touch with you through your website. And we appreciate your knowledge and your candidness about just certain things where it's, the serious about the biome, but also to, to for everyone to realize, hey, we're all built a little bit differently. We'll have to have the exact same things. And that's what makes us very unique. So again, thank you, Dr. Hazen. And for those that enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to our podcast and be with us in the next episodes to come as we talk to you more about how it is that you can improve your vitality with very specific things that you can do in your day-to-day activities. Thank you so much. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast presented to you by Apex Training Gym, where our goal is to provide you with workable ideas and sound training concepts to give you the optimal leverage you need to move anything in the gym and in your life. Because when you change your mind, you change your life.